I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. We've seen children being prosecuted for terrorism offences, even for setting up their own far-right terrorist groups. While the massive wealth of information on the internet technically allows us to break free of silos and insular mindsets that existed before the age of technology, algorithms and social media platforms actually serve to pull us deeper into echo chambers. By pushing curated content through recommendations and filtering out certain perspectives, most of the time our news feeds only serve to reinforce our current beliefs, the curse of confirmation bias. It's no wonder then that the internet has become the most favoured place for terrorists and extremists to push their violent ideologies and narratives. As new social platforms constantly become available, people are becoming radicalised online in a way that was beyond the realms of possibility before the internet. Fortunately, work to tackle terrorist use of the internet is ramping up, and one major player in these efforts is tech against terrorism. Anna Cranel is a senior research analyst at the organisation, and she's also the host of the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. I'm pleased to say that she's my guest today. Chapter 1. Countering the Threat So how do you shut down terrorists online? You might think you can just pull their content down, stop them from posting, and that would be the end of it. But it's not as simple as that. Not only is the internet a very big place, you also have to be very careful about what is considered terrorism. Free speech is a coveted part of our modern world, and blanket bans on certain words, phrases, or content could impinge on our human rights. This is the razor's edge that tech against terrorism has to balance on. We're a public-private partnership, and we were launched in 2017 by the UN. And basically, our mission is to support the global tech sector in countering terrorist exploitation of the internet whilst respecting human rights. And why we do that? Um, well, obviously, a massive part of terrorism nowadays is terrorist use of the internet. It's how they communicate. It's how they spread propaganda. It's how they uh, have the possibility to recruit people and radicalize people as well. And then the second part really is that, uh, you know, the tech sector is quite wide. You've got large tech companies, you've got uh, medium tech companies, and you've got very small tech companies, and they often also range in purpose. So it could be social media, it could be websites, it can be like um, file sharing or video sharing. And these platforms don't always have the same ability to respond to terrorist exploitation. So whereas Facebook, Twitter, and sort of the bigger platforms that we all know, they've evidently done a good job so far in, in clamping down on the majority of the speech. But after that, terrorists noticed and basically we've seen an adversarial shift to smaller platforms that are not really able to first of all realize they're being exploited and then second of all how to counter that and as terrorist content you know if it's online somewhere whether on a smaller platform you know it will still be accessible and still be able to be used as terrorists want it to be used so therefore for us it's very important to support the smaller tech companies to make sure that terrorists exploitation ends there as well terrorist use of the internet it combines so many different stakeholders so we work with the global internet forum to counter terrorism so that's the gift ct so those are the bigger tech companies then we work with smaller tech companies we also work with governments to make sure that for example online regulation is a massive area of our focus how to counter terrorist exploitation but also make sure that we uphold human rights such as freedom of expression and then also we work with civil society 
and academia. And our idea really is to bring together these stakeholders and to make sure that everyone sort of is on the same page and that we, you know, counter this as effectively together as possible. You have a dual role because in addition to your day job working for or working with the team at Tech Against Terrorism, you also host their podcast and you're trying to find a way to bring these issues to life to people like me who wouldn't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about them. But it seems that almost on a daily basis, there is a new Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever it is documentary about the use of the internet. Do you think people would be surprised if they knew the size and scale of the problem that you are trying to deal with? Just how big an issue is this? I think pre-COVID-19 and pre-the pandemic, I think most of the people that I spoke to about my job were completely surprised and didn't really realize how big of a thing this is. And I do think because of the pandemic and the focus we've seen on, you know, conspiracy theories, anti-vaxxers, and the potential for how this can all combine into more extreme ideologies, especially like far-right ideologies, I think with the January 6th like capital attack, I think people realize the effect it could have of these online sort of fringe movements, you know, uniting in a in an offline setting. So I think that has really changed the way where people realize that the internet is a massive part of terrorism and violent extremism. But I think before, yeah, before the pandemic, that was completely different. And whether people would be surprised, I think, yes, they probably would still be surprised. I think, you know, when we talk about terrorist groups that have weekly magazines, lecture series, their output is still very consistent. And whilst you might not be able to stumble across it as easily as you were in, for example, 2014, 2015, you know, it still comes out on a weekly basis. And we monitor, well, we monitor terrorist communications online on a daily basis. We're familiar with the term influencer as we think we understand it in terms of a YouTube channel or an Instagram account having tens of millions of of likes and and people being paid to promote certain activities. We've got pretty comfortable with that recently. To then drift into a conversation where terrorist groups are putting out weekly news series and weekly lecture series is well nothing short of mind-blowing and yet I kind of feel that I'm shocked but not surprised to learn that that this is there I mean does the does the notion of influence does it mean the same thing in in terms of the the groups that you're trying to shut down is there a community of people like me potentially sat at home wanting to believe in something clicking on the wrong thing or even searching for the wrong thing and ending up being confronted by something that is a deeply disturbing manifesto to be put uh, across. Is that could that happen? Could I click on something and and just watch it? Is it that easy? I think it depends. So I think you know, obviously, since the Islamic State, there has been a massive clampdown on Islamist terrorist content online. You know, you would really have to search quite well to stumble across. Islamist terrorist content on bigger social media platforms and these bigger social media platforms, we call them beacon platforms. So these are kind of, they signpost to then smaller tech companies where more content is hosted. So I think on the Islamist side, I would find that quite difficult. However, for the far right and conspiracy theorist, it actually isn't that difficult. I think we've definitely seen, you know, how someone can go from basically clicking on 
uh, COVID-19 information vaccinations to then a conspiracy theorist who's saying don't take the vaccine because of this and this reason. And then unfortunately, with mis and disinformation, you know, algorithms can suck you really into a rabbit hole where more and more of that content is then recommended to you, which might then give you the idea like you've uncovered the absolute truth because one video just naturally leads you to the next. And unfortunately, we've also seen that that doesn't really, it doesn't even have to stay on the same narrative. So you could go from COVID-19 to basically, you know, the Christchurch attack live stream in 2019, just by clicking through the recommended videos. Chapter two, accelerationism. Typically, terrorists have a utopian view of the world they're striving towards. They often have in their minds an image from the past, a time before the modern world brought diversity to our lives. They see what we have as something that is broken, in need of fixing. But in a recent episode of the Tech Against Terrorism podcast, I learned that there are factions of violent extremists who believe the world is beyond repair. And what we need is a reboot of civilization as we know it. To any writer, this ideology smacks of a post-apocalyptic narrative, but this isn't fiction. This dystopian view of the world is what these groups genuinely believe. So where do these ideologies stem from and how did they come about? So what you're talking about is these sort of accelerationist beliefs whereby it's, well, it's a fascist ideology that basically rejects liberalism, you know, basically all, all modern ideas. And for me, I think I've, so I, in the past, I've looked at sort of nostalgic beliefs of, of nationalism, of racism and conservative ideas around gender roles. And I think for me, and I, I think for writers, it could be very interesting to look into like sort of these nostalgic ideas, because from what I see for the far right, they kind of want to go back almost. They want to go back to more, you know, nationalistic ideas where there was a country was protected by borders. There was one particular culture, that particular culture was brought about by a particular, well, basically one race. And anything outside of that was, you know, just basically not your issue because there was very much a monoculturalism idea instead of a multiculturalism world. And then globalization came and all of that kind of changed. Borders kind of became less important, which obviously is a bit strange to say now with uh, Ukraine and Russia. But borders became less important. You know, we had multiculturalism, we had um, different identities, different races. And I think for a lot of people that did bring about quite an existential sort of uncertainty, how to, to grapple with all of that. And also with that came sort of a change in the economic system, which I think, you know, did leave some of the people sort of behind. And I think those people then had to look like, what, where can I then find my certainty? Who, who are we as a country? Uh, who are we as a race? And who am I as a person? And I think therefore people kind of want to go back to nostalgic ideas of, of nationalism, of birth culture, and of uh, gender roles. I also think with accelerationism, you know, it's very interesting to me how different terrorist ideologies kind of learn from each other. So whereas the far right would kind of stereotypically always be opposed to ISIS or Al-Qaeda, actually these accelerationist belief well, they kind of take inspiration from the Islamic State and they're actually saying, well, they're, you know, they also adhere to a strong ideology and are doing better than the people are just like you and me, basically, that live ordinary lives. Um, so I think that crossover is very, very interesting. And it's, as you say, like, it just it's also very different in terms of terrorist groups. Often they want to be violent now to establish a certain goal, for example, the Islamic State and the caliphate. Whilst these accelerationists, they're like, no, we need to collapse the entire system before our idealized version of the world can actually play out. 
so it's a very it's a very different idea of terrorism as a researcher that's obviously fascinating I find ideology and faith fascinating. What I'm staggered by is what you said about learning opportunities that, for example, terrorist groups have from other terrorist groups. There is swapping of of what? Of, of tactics, of things that might work, of new ways of thinking. Is that what's happening? Yeah, for sure. Um, so in terms of tactics, you can see, you know, um, bomb manuals created by uh, Al-Qaeda even back in the day, they're now being shared by the far right uh, in terms of how to create an IED. Also in terms of sowing division in society and sort of creating that in-group, out-group feeling, uh, there's manuals from both sides that go around kind of teaching extremists and uh, terrorists how to do so. And we've seen basically them being swapped by vice versa. So the far right will have um, these manuals from Islamists and Islamists are looking as to what the far right is doing. Um, so I think that they're, they're, they're obviously learning from each other and it kind of makes sense, right? Because, well, the Islamic State had had an effect and I think the far right would very much, some of these far right groups would like to copy that effect and therefore it's it's smart to learn from each other it's also interesting as to you know a lot of the islamist propaganda that we look at at work it's all often also shared in like far-right channels which is interesting because it also helps to radicalize far-right actors more as to oh see what muslims are doing this is your ordinary muslim person doing this therefore you should radicalize to more far-right ideologies so yeah it's it's definitely tactical in terms of accelerationism. Well, to be honest, I, to some extent, I do understand it because for me, it's very much these extremist ideas are closer together than we think. I think often we see, you know, we've got left wing, we've got right wing, and then Islamist terrorism is somewhere, you know, on its own. But I think actually all of these extreme ideologies and all these ideas that justify that violence is required to bring out bring about a certain goal i think they're all way closer together than we actually think the ideologies might be different but the way to get there and sort of the the root of the radicalization process as well they're they're all quite similar my only frame of reference for being on the receiving end of this kind of rhetoric is some research that i did into a department that exists within the metropolitan police whereby detectives will regularly pose online as teenagers in an attempt to flush out grooming and the research states that obviously when you're online you can be anyone you could be anyone you want and it is typically a lengthy process to groom a child if you're doing it in person it is the work of seconds if you're doing it online and a lot of people are simply curious. I don't know why, but that's what the research points out. A lot of people are simply curious. Is the same thing happening here? Are people looking for an ideology that confirms a view that they already have? Is it that? Is it a mixture of them also being curious? And is it easier to radicalize someone using the internet than it might be in person? I'm, I'm horrified by what I think is going to be your answer, which is it probably is. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I think to the first, it's definitely a mixture of things. So some people go into these online spaces basically looking for material that indeed confirms their existing beliefs. Other people are genuinely just curious. But then obviously, you know, when they go into those spaces, that is very worrying because these spaces are often echo chambers. You know, the idea that it will be a, a fruitful debate, that's probably not the case. It will probably be material that will draw you in further. So that is that is definitely worrying. In terms of taking on a different persona, that's also very interesting because we've definitely seen that. So we've seen, for example, women 
recruiting men online for the Islamic State, pretending to be men, because these male spaces were more accessible than female spaces. So that is a very interesting trend. So people can kind of change who they are, and we definitely see that happening. And for us, that's also very difficult, because how do you assess when someone's just posting you know, abusive comments just for the sake of it. So for what we call shitposting. And when is something actually a credible and imminent threat? And having to like sort of assess what that is can be very difficult. And basically we need to do on a daily basis. In terms of the radicalization online and offline. So it's very interesting. So where there is online radicalization, I would say that there's almost always an offline component. So even yesterday we saw a a strategy by a far-right terrorist group promoting, you know, if you're going to radicalize someone online, make sure they participate in offline rallies, make sure that people network offline, because whilst online relationships are being made, and obviously you can radicalize somewhere from across the world, the offline connection is still very important. Um, so it's usually the the mix between the two, and actually our upcoming podcast episodes is going to delve into exactly that. What is the what is kind of the online realm, the offline realm in the process of radicalization? The main worry for me, indeed, is that the online world has obviously been able to facilitate radicalization to a great extent because you can speak to anyone across the world and you can do that basically the entire day if you wanted to. And an even bigger worry in that is obviously, especially in the UK, we've seen children being prosecuted for terrorism offences, even for setting up their own far-right terrorist groups. Um, So, you know, you've got children basically spending their days online, acting and posting in these online spaces, and that kind of going, you know, unchecked to a certain extent. Chapter three, the push and pull. Radicalization is a process of dramatic change. There's no switch that's flipped. It's insidious, a mixture of many compounding elements that warp a person's perception of reality. As a writer, change is an important part of character development. So it's interesting to see how dramatically a person's character can change at its most fundamental level. We can often rely on creating stable personalities for our characters so that their motivations always make sense to the audience or the reader. But how do you help your reader and audience follow the motivations of a character who is no longer the person they used to be? This got me thinking, are there any helpful or harmful portrayals of radicalization that exist either in literature or on screen? It's a really interesting question. To be honest, I I posed it to my team members as well. We had a great debate uh, about it. And we came up with, I think my colleague was like Voldemort, very interesting. Uh, The Joker, very interesting. So so it it was a really great question. I think for me... You know, someone's radicalization process is so personal. So I think some of some of these movies and books, I think Home Fire is a, is a very good book about someone radicalizing and, and joining ISIS. In a way, actually, the first season of Jack Ryan is quite interesting where someone gets droned uh, or their family gets droned, gets killed. He then moves to France. Uh, there's a real feeling of social isolation, discrimination that all kind of plays into his radicalization process. I would say sort of the best thing I've seen is actually a Dutch movie. It's called Lila M. And I do think it's actually accessible with subtitles, but it really goes into a girl's radicalization process from being a second generation Muslim in Amsterdam, being discriminated and being sort of isolated and then kind of meet some people that draw her further into, you know, the Islamic State. She then 
watches videos and reads sort of ISIS there narratives around the treatment of Muslims in the Middle East, which evidently there's a lot of factual um, information on this as well. Um, she had to look at Guantanamo Bay, for example, and then she gets further drawn into it and decides to travel to ISIS. Um, she then gets married because evidently that's part of the process. If you go to ISIS, you have to marry and have kids to be the future um future generation of the of the caliphate and then she also you kind of see her disengage and she, you see her being disappointed by what it means to join islamic state and it actually not being a good muslim which is why she went and then her coming back and i actually think that that was a very good example of a radicalization process but again i think what we need to highlight is that there's not one process everyone goes through such a like mixture of push and pull factors so push factors are the factors that are such as socioeconomic circumstances, kind of the structural factors that can play into someone's radicalization and then pull factors are more personal. So they are very much the, you know, for instance, foreign intervention in the Middle East, certain messages that really targets to your own personal feelings of morality, religion, etc. So it's kind of a mixture of those. And what I would be really interested to see, because I do think there's sort of a, there's always a focus on men radicalizing towards uh, Salafi jihadi ideologies. I'd be really interested to see like how would someone radicalize, you know, into far right ideologies or even incel ideologies, because I do think there's a, a definite focus on men. And often when we then focus on on female radicalization, which is why I was quite impressed by that Dutch movie, it's often very oversimplified and it's often also attributed to, to men. So it's very much that women radicalize because they want to get married and because they have reasons that are not really out of their own agency but because of a man in her life and i think that that is an oversimplification that really doesn't help and unfortunately still gets you know the idea of like jihadi brides in in mainstream media i can't believe that that is still a term that some of these like bigger newspapers use it's fascinating i'm particularly interested in the push and pull factors and on what you just said about mainstream media we are living in extremely difficult times at the moment, given what is happening in Ukraine. And it is interesting to observe things that get said online that may or may not be true. They may or may not be accurate. They may be well-intentioned. They, they may not. It's a very interesting example of trying to see the narrative and trying to work out what you believe. And, and it's made me increasingly, actually, and, and not just this conflict, it's made me, I think, increasingly more against believing what I am confronted with. I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of if what you said earlier, if you only surround yourself with the same thing, then you get confirmation bias and you just surround yourself with people who agree with everything and you don't necessarily learn. But I, on an increasing basis, am finding myself pausing and thinking, wait, do I believe that? Am I prepared to go down that journey? Which is exhausting because it means every decision that you make takes, you know, th three, three times as long. But not everyone's doing that. We are very, very, very capable of believing the first thing that's put in front of us, aren't we? We're very, very receptive to information and misinformation and disinformation that is put in front of us. One, that says a lot about us. But two, it can be incredibly damaging, particularly at a time like this. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And um, I think 
One of the, the ways that which you can, for example, um, counter terrorist use of the internet, one way is to simply uh, remove the content. So when it comes to actually like Islamic State content or content produced by any designated terrorist organization, any official material, we recommend and actually have developed a tool that alerts that to tech companies and then tech companies take that offline. Um, so it's called the Terrorist Content Analytics Platform or the TCAP. It's a bit of a mouthful. And we've seen actually, so we've sent over it. Well, we've been alerting tech companies for a bit over a year now and we've alerted over 14,000 URLs containing terrorist content and 94% of that content has been taken down which I think when it comes to the most extreme types of content you know it should go offline you don't want anyone stumbling across a beheading uh, or anything like that but on the other hand you also have to think of you know what does that actually what effects does that have on someone's radicalization so when you de-platform people so for example with Parler after the uh, you know uh, the capital attack Parler and other sort of fringe platforms were just taken offline and people that were on these platforms they basically kind of almost radicalized further because the space that they could communicate freely was taken away from them and the sort of in-group out-group sentiments only grew so it's very difficult to decide you know when do you take something offline and the effects it's having and then another way to go about this which I think as a writer is very interesting is is what we call counter narratives so this would be that you know you basically address either the root causes or some of the content online. So for example, when you look for Islamic State material on Instagram, there's quite a prominent counter-narrative campaign that will then lead you, that if you click on that content, it will lead you to videos where you get interviews with people that traveled and joined the Islamic State and became very disillusioned. And then hopefully you would think that people listen to that and hopefully it will dissuade them from looking for more terrorist content or or joining or um, radicalizing further into into these ideas another interesting thing which i find a very interesting campaign is in indonesia they did basically they targeted people that were looking at violent islamist content with anti-loneliness campaigns and i believe i'm not exactly sure of the percentage but i believe it swayed more than 50% of the people clicked on the anti-loneliness rather than the terrorist content. So I think designing these like counter-narratives could be a really good way of not only, you know, not risking that it might make it worse because people, you know, that really want to find it, they'll probably find it, but kind of targeting those people with counter-narratives that kind of questions their beliefs and hopefully would make them think of alternative routes for their lives. It's fascinating. It, it drags you, doesn't it, into the into the notion of, almost rehabilitation in the same way that you would somebody that had gone to prison, you know, the extent to which society has a responsibility to rehabilitate people who have been exposed to radicalization and then come through a process. I'm, I'm guessing we're, we're nowhere near as mature at that as we would like to be, but that's where it, that's where it seems to be heading. Is that right? For sure. And I think, you know, the question is also, what do we want? So you've got on the one hand disengagement and on the other hand, you've got de-radicalization. So disengagement would mean that someone would still adhere to these extreme ideas. They just wouldn't think that violence is justified or they wouldn't be violent or join terrorist group based on those ideas. De-radicalization would mean that someone ha would have to completely step away from those ideas as well on top of that. And I think as a society, we have to figure out what do we want? Is disengagement enough or do we want someone to really de-radicalize? I think there's there's different programs in the world that deal with de-radicalization and disengagement, and they've got completely different strategies. So whereas in Egypt, 
torture is frequently used in Saudi Arabia, it would be sort of a mix. It would also be a rewarding scheme. So, for example, you know, marriage or like a house, which is very interesting. Obviously, in the West, we're more constrained. We can't really, you know, we can't do that. But there's also a very much still a lack of research when it comes to de-radicalization also in prisons because Western countries are a bit hesitant towards giving researchers access and information on that, which I find, I, I get some of the reasons for it, but this is going to be one of the biggest challenges we've got. So I think any research should be done on this. And also I think there's just been a new research initiative, which is also really of our times which deals with these well the children of is fighters and how to make sure that they don't radicalize and they don't become a security threat for the west so yeah it is definitely the the future and i hope more studies will go into this well thank you first of all for the work that you and the team do and thank you for helping dissect it for this audience i guess the most natural starting place for somebody that wanted to dive into it a little bit more would be the podcast which is very accessible it sounds like that next week episode is very interesting with the debate about online versus offline and in or in person perhaps you know more analog events it's been an absolute fascinating pleasure thank you very much for everything we wish you well both with the work and with the podcast Anna Cronin it's been a pleasure thank you thank you so much for having me and as I said it was really interesting to kind of come come to what we do from a different angle it's been it's been really fascinating and me and my colleagues have have been talking about it for uh, for a while now so thank you so much for having me conclusion a massive thank you then to Anna Cronin for today's episode and to recap what have we learned well a huge amount. Counter-narratives play a valuable role in dismantling problematic ideologies and shattering false illusions. As a writer, you have the power to help this cause. Arna says that far-right and incel ideologies don't show up much on screen or in literature, so perhaps you could be the writer to bring this story to life and maybe create positive change. Curiosity as a writer is paramount, So it's interesting to note then that curiosity is actually the reason some people end up being radicalized. The lesson is, I think, utilize your curiosity well, search to broaden your horizons, but not to expand your knowledge on a narrow field of focus. Don't let your curiosity become single-minded. And finally, if you choose to depict terrorists in your writing, understand that they are not the ragtag group of clueless extremists we often hear about. They've become sophisticated, well-oiled propaganda machines. Understand the gravity of the threat we're facing to ensure authenticity in your writing. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.